The following production is brought to you by Derek Lamont Enterprises, a subsidiary of LBM Entertainment, exclusively licensed for use on Patreon.com. Enjoy the show. For as far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. Alright, well, not really, but that's the reason we're here today, right? We're still exploring this fascination that we as Americans have with Casa Nostra. Uh, what's better known as the Italian-Sicilian Mafia, to be more exact. In the first two episodes, we covered what are thought to be some of the most classic films in cinema, The Godfather and The Godfather 2. And here we are with episode 3, covering a very pivotal film, also in, in the culture. Not just the culture itself, but in, you know, an American film, in American cinema. Um, Goodfellas. Scorsese's masterpiece, uh... Touched a bit briefly on Scorsese and the Godfather 2 episode when we found out that Scorsese, that actually Coppola wanted Scorsese to direct the film because he just wanted to produce it. So here we are, obviously. Um, Scorsese adapted the Goodfellas script from the book Wise Guy by Nicholas Pileggi. I've read the book and it's absolutely phenomenal. Um, it is the first of all the gangster films I ever saw. Uh, Goodfellas from 1990 at that point I'm 8 years old now I didn't see it in 1990 I don't think I saw it till like 95 or 96 my parents were absolutely not letting me watch a film like that but from the moment I saw it it stuck with me you know and even still that's 30 plus years ago it's still one of my favorite films of all time uh, so much so that I can quote lines from it, you know, at the drop of any hat, which a lot of films I can, but when it comes to Goodfellas, I know that film like the back of my hand. Um, it was only natural that Goodfellas got the Derek Lamont experience treatment as well, because it is, it's, you know, the definitive film of its genre for that time, especially considering that The Godfather 3 came out at the same time. And we've already dismissed that as not even, you know, being worth covering, right? Because obviously we're talking about the Sicilian Mafia. The difference is with the Goodfellas, this is an outsider's look at being in the Mafia. You know, we find out what being made is. It's never discussed in The Godfather. You know, you were just part of the Corleone family, the Barzini family, the Italia family, etc., etc. They never talk about the lower soldiers and how they get to be a part of the family and things like that. And then we find out here in Goodfellas that you have to be made, and, and you also have to be 100% Sicilian, and they have to trace your blood back to the old country on both sides from your mother and father. So, we're going to dive into that. Goodfellas, of course, is a 1990 American biographical crime film directed by Martin Scorsese, written by Nicholas Pelegni and Scorsese, and produced by Erwin Winkler. It is a film adaptation of the 1985 non-fiction book Wise Guy by Pelleggi, starring Robert De Niro, Ray Liotta, Joe Pesci, Lorraine, Barco, Lorraine Bracco, who, of course, I've said many times I love Lorraine Bracco, and Paul Servino. The film narrates the rise and fall of mob associate Henry Hill and his friends and family from 1955 to 1980. Scorsese initially titled the film Wise Guy and postponed making it. He and Pelleggi later changed the title to Goodfellas. To prepare for their roles in the film, De Niro, Pesci, and Leota often spoke with Pelegi, who shared research information left over from writing the book. According to Pesci, improvisation and ad-libbing came out of rehearsals when Scorsese gave the actors freedom to do whatever they wanted. The director made transcripts of these sessions, 
took the lines he liked most and put them in a revised script, which the cast worked from during principal photography. Goodfellas premiered at the 47th Venice International Film Festival on September 9th of 1990, where Scorsese was awarded with excuse me, Silver Lion for Best Director and was released in the United States on September 19th of 1990 by Warner Brothers. The film was made on a budget of $25 million and grossed $47 million. The critical consensus on Rotten Tomatoes calls it arguably the high point of Martin Scorsese's career. And I myself felt the same way. You know, there's a ton of Scorsese films. The only one that initially comes to mind when you say Marty Scorsese is Goodfellas. Now, The Departed I love as well, but that came later on in his career. If you say Scorsese to me, I automatically think of Goodfellas. The film was nominated for six Academy Awards, including Best Picture and Best Director, with Pesci winning for Best Supporting Actor. The film won five awards from the British Academy of Film and Television Arts, including Best Film and Best Director. Additionally, Goodfellas was named the year's best film by various critics and groups. Goodfellas is widely regarded as one of the greatest films ever made, particularly in the gangster genre. In 2000, it was deemed culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant and selected for preservation in the National Film Registry by the United States Library of Congress. Its content and style have been emulated in numerous other films and television series. Um, obviously, you see that they are like Easter eggs for Goodfellas in other films. Uh, Michael Imperioli, who plays Spider in The Goodfellas, plays Christopher Maltesanti in, in uh, The Sopranos. There's a scene where Joe Pesci shoots at Spider's feet in Goodfellas, and then they kind of not exactly do the same thing, but there's a callback to that in an episode of The Sopranos where Christopher shoots at uh, the guy at the bakery. Um, excuse me, not that there are any Lorraine Bracco Easter eggs. Bracco, obviously most famous for her uh, portrayal of Karen Hill in Goodfellas, went on to play Dr. Um, Melfi in The Sopranos. And again, we're going to talk about her and Michael Imperioli, again, because obviously the Soprano episode will be the final episode of this series that I'm doing. But a lot of these people, you know, made their bones on Goodfellas. And that's a term that's used, you know, or was used back in that day to talk about how you basically got into, excuse me, the mafia and, and um, how you kind of made your living and things like that. So... Of course, when I set out to do this, excuse me, this film was absolutely necessary to do. You know, The Godfather is necessary to do for many reasons. And if you're doing a podcast about film and you don't do a Godfather episode or a Godfather 2 episode, you're kind of doing yourself a disservice. But we're here specifically to talk about these things because, again, as I stated, America has a fascination with Cosa Nostra. Otherwise, these films wouldn't gross the money that they do, and they wouldn't become these iconic pieces of, uh, of our lives. You know, we've covered films, and we're in the third one that's actually been preserved in the Library of Congress, in the, uh, the National Film Registry. So obviously they mean something to us, culturally, historically, and aesthetically. This is the impact that they're given, and that's why they're there. So, with Goodfellas, it's just one of those things, if somebody says one thing, you automatically know where to go with the next thing. Now, as I'm recording this, Drake just released his most recent album, Certified Lover Boy, and there's a song with Jay-Z where he, you know, makes a statement, I don't shine shoes anymore, and that's a direct callback 
to Goodfellas when Billy Bats comes home from prison, and he's like, oh, Tommy, you're getting too grown on me. You used to call this shit, this uh, kid spit shine Tommy. You make your shoes look like mirrors. And Tommy says, you've been away a while, Billy. I don't know if you know, I don't shine shoes anymore. Oh, oh, I'm just breaking your balls a little bit. That's what Jay-Z meant in that line. I don't shine shoes anymore. Like, this callback, the rest of you guys are... uh, or we as listeners are supposed to be Billy Bats, and Jay-Z's telling us, look, I don't shine shoes anymore. That's beneath me. That was the old me. This is the new me. So culturally, here in 2021, we have an album released, a very anticipated album that everybody was waiting on, where a line is referenced from a film from 1990, 31 years ago. And that lets you know how important this film is. Because otherwise, it's just, if he didn't sound... What the fuck is Jay-Z talking about shining shoes? If you if you haven't seen Goodfellas, you don't know what he's talking about. But anybody who's seen the movie knows exactly what he's talking about. And that's why we're back here. And again, we're having this conversation because this film is culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant to American culture. Alright, so again, ladies and gentlemen, this is Goodfellas. Now, again, as I talked about some of the quotes, these are my favorite things. As I started out this episode, as far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. That's Henry Hill. That's how he introduces us introduces us to this world that he wants to be a part of. He was an outsider. And he only gained access by getting a after-school job at a cab stand and running errands for a family, the, na- the local neighborhood family, to which eventually led him to becoming a small associate and being a small part of their crew and carrying out errands and things like that for them. But it, it, get, it got him a lifetime of, in the end, grief. And for Henry, he couldn't control his activities, and it was a lot deeper than what you're supposed to do. You know, As we talked about in the Godfather episode, drugs are a no-no, right? Or they were, at least until a certain time point, the time period. Drugs were a no-no when it came to uh, Casa Nostra because the sentences imposed on criminals if they caught, get, got caught in the drug trade could lead them to years upon years in prison in which they're going to be asked to turn witness against their former associates. So they can't take the chance on you getting locked up and then them telling you, yeah, we're giving you 30 fucking years unless you give me some names. Right? So the drug trade was frowned upon. Uh, Another indelible quote. You know, we always called each other good fellas. Like you say to somebody, you're going to like this guy. He's all right. He's a good fella. He's one of us. You understand? Another quote by Henry Hill. And obviously we're looking, we're reading the book, you know, from the perspective of Henry Hill. And then we're also seeing the film from the perspective of Henry Hill. Yeah, you're going to like this guy. He's one of us. He's a good fella. Right? Um... That's something we've said, you know? My friends and I, we've said that since we all know the film so well and growing up. Oh, we're going to go kick it with such and such. Who, who is that? Oh, you, you'll like him. He's, a, he's one of us. He's a good fellow. He's a good guy. He's one of us. Right? And the point where Henry actually makes that statement um, is a very pivotal time in the film because... You have this great score playing in the background, and we know this is the day that Tommy, Joe Pesci's character, character, I'm sorry, is going to be made. And then eventually he doesn't get made. He gets killed because of things that he did. You know, he was a live wire. 
Tommy was all over the place. And um, speaking of Billy Bats, you know, I don't fucking shine shoes anymore. That comment led him to his death. You know, it was payback for a lot of things, but most importantly, it was payback for Billy Bats because he whacked a made guy. A made guy who had just came home from the can. So again, that's another thing that sticks out in the film. The third quote. The first time Henry gets arrested, you know, they call it getting pinched. He's, what, 15, 16 years old. And he's extremely worried, like, he's going to be in trouble and this, that, and the third. And that's the crazy thing. He never worried about what his parents are going to do to him. He worried about how it would affect his relationship with Jimmy and Polly and the guys in the family. Henry gets arrested. Tommy runs back to the hideout. It sounds funny to say hideout. Well, where the guys were and lets them know Henry got pinched down, you know, by the factory selling cigarettes. And then, you know, they send him a lawyer. He gets out, you know, gets away with it. And he comes out. And they're like, the whole family basically is out there. Like, oh, you popped your cherry. And it's a celebration. And he's like, I I thought you guys would be pissed. And Jimmy says, no, everybody gets pinched. But you learn the most important things. You never rat on your friends. And you always keep your mouth shut. And that's all it took. The kid got popped selling cigarettes. And here's the thing. You get arrested. What do you think happened to all those cigarettes? Because Tommy bolted and had to tell them that he got arrested. Tell them that Henry got arrested. Where do you think all those cigarettes went? That's cargo. That's money. That's material. That's product. But they weren't mad. They literally celebrated and guys were putting $20 bills in his pocket saying, Congratulations, you broke your cherry. It was his graduation. Never rat on your friends and always keep your mouth shut. Seminal moment in the film. Another moment early from on, from early on in the film, and this is why Henry wanted to be a part of this. One day, some some of the kids from the neighborhood carried my mother's groceries all the way home. You know why? It was out of respect. Henry's like 15 years old, and he was making more money than some of the adult men in the neighborhood. And with that, he gained a reputation, and everybody in the neighborhood knew who he was around. He was around Pauly and, and those guys. So, hey, Mr. Hill, even though you're my age, hey, Mr. Hill, is there anything I can do for you? Hello, Mrs. Hill. I see you got some groceries. Let me carry those home for you. Is there anything I can do for you? Some kids from the neighborhood carried my mother's groceries all the way home. You, won't, you know why? It was out of respect. He wasn't a made guy because he was only half Sicilian. His father was Irish, if I'm not mistaken. I know Jimmy's was definitely Irish. You know, they, you know, um, Jimmy was half Irish, half German. Uh, Maurice says my kraut make friend. Um, but, but Henry was half, uh, half Irish, half Italian. So he was, there was no way he was going to be made. Jimmy wasn't going to be made either. They were just associates of the crew. And to be completely honest with you, this is left out of the book and obviously left out of the film. I'm not so sure that they weren't looked down upon because they didn't have full Sicilian blood. But just being around a crew like that can do wonders for your reputation, especially in the neighborhood. And you're already making more money than most of the older the older gentlemen in the neighborhood. Again, some kids from the neighborhood carried my mother's groceries all the way home. You want to know why? Out of respect. 
another seminal moment. And this is this is all a lot of this is really early in the film. Uh, as far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. That's the first thing you hear after you hear you know them stab Billy Bats in the trunk. Um, never rat on your friends and always keep your mouth shut. That's within the first twenty or thirty minutes at least, because Henry is still a teenager at that point. Now the last quote, obviously. Now go home and get your fucking shine box, Billy Bats. That is. Oh crap! Sorry. <laughs> Gotta bump the microphone there. That's as an important quote in film history as anything else. That's just as important as, well, not as important as Don Vito saying, I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse, but that's up there. Excuse me. And then this goes back to what I said earlier. You know, Jay Z and the Shine Box reference. This all comes from Billy Bat saying, Now go home and get your fucking Shine Box. Oh, they used to call him Spit Shine Tommy. He'd make your shoes look like mirrors, and he made a lot of money. Uh, you know, you've been gone a long time, Billy. I don't know if they, if you, if you heard up there, I don't shine shoes anymore. Oh, oh, I'm only breaking your balls a little bit. I'm just breaking your balls, Tommy. Don't go getting too big on me. All right, Billy. All right, all right. Now go home and get your fucking shine box, you motherfucking mutt. And then it's all over from there. And that's probably one of the most pivotal moments in the film because that exchange right there. And Tommy being the hothead that he is eventually leads to Tommy's death. He was about to get the ultimate the ultimate prize you can get in the mafia is being made, being being, you know, made to be part of a family, being part of a crew. Being made, you know, getting your butt and all that stuff, that's important. The only thing higher than that is maybe one day making uh consigliere or making boss of the family. Right? So, it's not that Billy Bats stopped Tommy from that. It's Tommy allowed Billy Bats to stop him from that. Because he couldn't just accept, just like, hey, just shut up. He couldn't just let it go. That was Tommy's problem. And ultimately, it led to his death. So, that's another important one. And again, if you guys haven't seen Goodfellas, uh, give me just a second... Goodfellas is available on HBO Max, Fubo TV, uh, YouTube to rent for three ninety nine, Voodoo for three ninety nine, Google Play Movies and TV, Apple TV three ninety nine, and Amazon Prime Video at three ninety nine as well. If you haven't seen it, you should definitely watch this film. Now, going over the film itself, <clears throat> some notes I took: Ray Liotta gives a thrillingly live wire and career defining performance as the wide eyed aspirational tough guy Henry himself whose gorgeous gravelly voice gives the film its sensual uh, voiceover. Along with Lorraine Bracco, imperious and char- uh, charismatic as Henry's loyal, mistreated wife Karen, perhaps the one character who emerges from the story with something approaching dignity. Which you really can't say that because Karen, as they told her, Karen, don't give me the babe in the woods act. We heard you on wiretap phones, talking about cocaine, drop-offs, and pickups and things like that, so you can't say you didn't know anything. And Karen definitely tried it. But they let her know. There's no way you can sit here and tell us you didn't know anything, Karen. Don't give me the babe in the woods routine, okay? Since the movie's original release, Bracco and Michael Imperioli, the hapless spider, went on to star in the HBO's Sopranos, which developed and amplified the movie's theme that being a gangster isn't as great as it used to be. The real Henry Hill died of a heart attack in 2012. Jimmy Conway succumbed to lung cancer in prison in 1996. 
Paul Vario, the model for Pauli, had died in prison in 1988, and Thomas D. Simone, the model for Pesci's unforgettable scary Tommy, vanished in 1979 and remains untraced for reasons that are obvious from the film. He vanished, if you want to call it that. He was murdered because of the events. You know, obviously Billy Bats. I'm not going to be a dead horse, but Billy Bats. Very important. Nonsense as Henry sells them out to the FBI to save himself and Jimmy... Parano uh, paranoically wax his comrades to preempt precisely this destiny. His strange and creepy offer of Dior dresses to Karen as possible ambush is one of the film's most brilliant, ambiguous moments. All the Bonhomie and good think times are alive. Mobsters are the friendliest just before the hit or the FBI sellout and the gangsters. Sentiment, uh, mentality, fear, and dysfunction are never more excruciating than when poor Tommy is taken into a basement for what he believes is his made guy ceremony in a way it is. And this, the strange thing is, it was easy for him to believe that because sometimes those ceremonies do take place in the back room of a restaurant or a basement or something like that. What made Tommy realize when he got down there, when they opened the door to the room, nobody else was in the room. That these ceremonies, the first time we, I, I've actually seen a ceremony like this was in The Sopranos. They take you in a room and there's usually other gentlemen, gentlemen as well who are being made at the same time. You know, there's a flame, they pick your, they prick your finger, uh, there's cards and things like that. There was nobody in the room. So Tommy had absolute cause for concern, and by the time his eyes got wide enough and realized this is some bullshit, they'd already put the gun to the back of his head. And the worst part was, it was Tootie, somebody he trusted. As Henry says in the film, your killers come with smiles. So for Tommy, it's a big day, and ultimately yeah it's a big day it's the last day of your life so tommy vanished not so much as he was murdered let's just be completely honest with ourselves but it had a lot it, it had a lot to do with billy bats in the film it's talked about it had to do with billy bats in the book bats is obviously mentioned but at the same time when tom when when henry was away in prison karen was carrying on an affair with tommy and karen was also carrying on an affair with Polly. You know how they say there's a lot of wars that start over either money, fame, or women? Here we go. And it didn't turn into a war. It was, you know, Polly was the boss. Polly was the boss of the family in the neighborhood. Tommy had ruffled a lot of fucking feathers, so he had to go. Especially because he killed Bats without having a sit-down, and Bats was a made guy. So he had to go. Now, watching Goodfellas again, what strikes me is the general, uh, the central question of uh, its comedy is Tommy famously acts funny how. Like Tommy, Tommy in that famous scene, the gangsters are always menacingly joking, kidding around, messing with you, and to use a key phrase, breaking your balls. Weirdly, the film it always reminds me of Woody, uh, at the film it always reminds me of, I'm sorry, is Woody Allen's Broadway Danny Rose. Veteran comic Hen Henny Youngman puts in a cameo for Goodfellas with a routine that Danny would have recognized. The very words Goodfellas or Wise Guys are steeped in are du duplicitous, aggressive comedy. No one rules the situation like a guy who's just got to laugh at someone else's expense. Goodfellas is a compelling black comic nightmare. They literally say, oh, I'm just breaking your balls a bit. A guy could lit literally be laying into you and everybody around is lying, laughing. All the wise guys are laughing. And literally, Jimmy takes a moment to kind of break Tommy's balls, you know. After Tommy shoots Spider and Spider's walking around with this huge cast on his foot, 
And they're like, come on, Tommy's like, come on, Spider, you looking for sympathy, sweetheart? Like, it isn't that bad. You got shot in the foot. You know, come on, speed it up. Bring me my drink. And Spider says, you know what, Tommy, why don't you go fuck yourself? And then Jimmy kind of starts breaking Tommy's balls. Oh, oh, you're going to let this kid talk to you? Here you go, Spider. That's a good job, Spider. Don't you take no shit off of nobody. Don't you take no shit off of nobody. He's breaking his balls. But then he turns to Tommy. You know, let this fucking kid talk to you like that? What the fuck has the world come to? And then Tommy just fucking l- l- just empties a clip full of lead into Spider's chest. That's what the fucking world's come to. To which everybody else breaks out. Jesus fucking Christ. Nice fucking game, fellas. Nice fucking games. Jimmy, what the fuck is wrong with you? I'm only breaking your balls a little bit. I don't know. You sound serious. Tommy's one of those guys you can't take lightly. And just hanging around the guys, breaking each other ball, each other's balls, maybe somebody else can deal with that. You know, Maury was breaking people's balls all the time. And people broke Maury's balls all the time. And Maury ended up dead for a different reason. But Tommy just couldn't stand it. And I identify with that. Because Joe Pesci's probably no taller than I am. Us short guys have a thing they call a Napoleon complex. You can't just sit there and fuck around with us because you're taller than us. And generally, that's what people want to do to us. Because they're like, this kid, this, this guy ain't going to say anything. I'll mop the floor with him. But you never know what anybody's carrying on them. If you were around Tommy, you knew he had a gun. Spider was really, you know, Spider had a lot of nuts to do that. Because there's no way I'd have done that to Tommy. There's no fucking way. But also in the same vein, I wouldn't find myself in that position because there's no way I'm going to work under a bunch of, you know, a bunch of wise guys. So, you know, breaking somebody's balls is very interesting. You know, the older we got or as time passed and in the hood, they call it playing the dozens. As we got older, it's joning, cracking jokes, flaming somebody, etc., etc. I've heard other stories where it did end excuse me, very badly for somebody. Somebody may have gotten beaten up. In some instances, yeah, I know that there are people who have been shot just because they were fucking around and joking and clowning somebody. That's life. Does it make it right? Absolutely fucking not. Nobody's going to say, oh, he was breaking his balls. It's a thing of the past. You know, it's thought to be something said by Italians. It's a thing of the past. But it does happen. This is a very dark film. And... This is evidence of it. This is absolute evidence of it. But again, it's one of the most incredible films I've ever seen. Just based on awards alone. You know, best supporting actor, best film, things like that. This film garnered a lot of awards. (laughs) So, of course, we're going to get down to the Roger Ebert review. Ebert was one of... um, you know, film's biggest critics for a long time until he passed away uh, a few years back. Roger Ebert gave this four out of five stars, and he rated this on September 2nd of 1990 upon the film's release. Now, again, I'm telling you, it's available to rent on Amazon Prime, Apple TV, Google Play, Vudu, Microsoft, YouTube, uh, Redbox, DirecTV, uh, subscription on HBO Max, And it looks like Charter Spectrum if you have Spectrum. So you can readily get Goodfellas anywhere. Um, Also, you you probably can find it like in the $5 bin at Walmart or something like that. The $5 
DVD bin, and that's not to say it's a bad movie, it's a phenomenal film, but it's also 31 years old at this point. And it's crazy that I'm sitting here recording it at this time. It is Saturday, September the 4th while I'm recording this, and 31 years ago, Roger Ebert released its review on September 2nd of 1990, so it's a bit eerie that I find myself doing it at this time. But fitting as well at the same time. Ebert says, For two days after I saw Martin Scorsese's new film, Goodfellas, the mood of the characters lingered with me refusing to leave. It was a mood of guilt and regret, of quick, stupid decisions leading to wasted lifetimes, of loyalty turned into betrayal. Yet at the same time, there was an element of uh, fortuitous nostalgia for bad times that shouldn't be missed but were. Most films, even great ones, evaporate like mist once you return to the real world. They leave memories behind, but their reality fades fairly quickly. Not this film, which shows America's finest filmmaker at the peak of his form. No finer film has ever been made out of organized crime, made about organized crime, not even The Godfather, although the two works are not really comparable. This is a hard one to argue. If you ask me to compare, compare the two films, I would tell you the, uh, that Goodfellas is actually the superior film. Now, if you line Goodfellas up to the, uh, with The Godfather 2, I'd have to go with The Godfather 2 at that point, to be honest with you. And after I finished episode two of the series, The Godfather 2, I was able to find the HBO supercut that puts the films, uh, The Godfather and Godfather 2 in chronological order, that starts with young Vito in Sicily and goes all the way up. So that's really cool. The one strange thing is when you get past all the young Vito stuff, um, they don't do the flashback scene where Pearl Harbor was bombed. That's interesting. I don't know why that part isn't in there. Or maybe they or maybe they attach it at the end of Godfather 2 after Michael has Fredo killed. So I don't know. I haven't gotten that far yet, but I'll, I'll let you guys know. Um, <clears throat> Goodfellas scheduled to open September 21st in Chicago as a memoir of life in the mafia narrated in first person by Henry Hill, played by Ray Liotta, an Irish-Italian kid whose only ambition from his earliest teens was to be a wise guy, a mafioso. There is also narration by Karen, the Jewish girl, Lorraine Bracco, and that's another thing people forget. Karen was Jewish. She was from the five towns. So I don't know how that would have worked, you know, if Henry had to, had, had been, excuse me, Sicilian on both sides. Could he be made if he married a Jewish woman? That's a question I actually never really thought about, Karen being Jewish and being from the top five towns. Uh, the Jewish girl who married him and who discovered that his entire social life was suddenly inside, her entire social life was suddenly inside the mafia. Mob wives never went anywhere or talked to anyone who was not part of that world, and eventually she says the values of the mafia came to seem like normal values. She was even proud of her husband for not lying around the house all day for having the energy and daring to go out and steal for a living. There is a real Henry Hill who disappeared into the uh, anonymity of the federal government's witness, witness protection program and who over a period of four years told everything he knew about the mob to the reporter Nicholas Pileggi, whose wise guy life in a mafia family was a bestseller. The screenplay by Pileggi and Scorsese distills those memories into a fiction that sometimes plays like a documentary that contains so much information and feeling about the mafia that finally it creates the same claustrophobic feeling Hill's wife talks about, the feeling that the mob world is the real world. Um... Strange thing about Henry Hill, yes, he passed away uh, like around 2012 or something like that. This guy entered the witness protection program because he turned federal witness on his friends, on these men who had given him this life. 
after the success of the film and years later, he would go on to do all these talks. There's videos on YouTube of him talking about it, you know. I think he was on the Howard Stern show, if I'm not mistaken, and things like that. The first rule of the mafia is omerta. And that's the act of silence. You're not supposed to talk about it. But that just lets you know how far removed we are from the heyday of the mobsters, you know. I think I talk about it in one instance where these guys used to wear perfectly tailored suits. Like, the lapel's so sharp you'd cut yourself. And not really truly cut yourself, but... Excuse me, they were very, very well-dressed. Silk ties and, and beautiful shoes. You know, spit shine Tommy, make your shoes look like mirrors. There is a heyday, and these guys would pull up in these nice big Cadillacs and things like that. To where we get to the times of the Sopranos when you got guys like Pussy and other guys just wearing tracksuits all day. It changed. It really fucking changed. And to be completely honest with you, I'm a guy that likes, like, I love a really nice suit, a really nice tailored suit. So I was initially drawn into Goodfellas and The Godfather because of that. I was, I always thought it was really cool to, to wear a really, really nice suit. You know, I, for whatever reason, ever since I was a kid, I thought that was really fucking cool. And then you get to modern times and you can't tell who's a member of the fa- of family anymore because you got guys that are my age that are made men and they're walking around wearing leather jackets and chains and stuff like that and Air Jordans and shit like that or Yeezys and Nikes and shit like that. There used to be a time where being a wise guy meant something and the way you dressed was a part of that and it's completely different now. Now, Scorsese is the right director, the only director for this material. He knows it inside out. The great formative experience of his life was growing up in New York's Little Italy as an outsider who observed everything. An asthmatic kid who couldn't play sports, whose health was too bad to allow him to lead a normal childhood, who was often overlooked but never missed a thing. So, the the duality of this film is the fact that we're given a look inside the mafia by Henry Hill because he was a mob associate. So we're seeing it through his through through his narration and his stories, but the duality of it is we're seeing it through the eye of Marty Scorsese, who grew up in Little Italy and saw these same exact things, and what we're seeing is Henry's words and Henry's memories through Marty's vision, and it creates Im- impactful duality, and that's why the film is so great. Like even the shot where they go to the Copa where they go through the the kitchen and things like that. It's all brilliant. It's one shot. And um, whoever the director of cinematography was nailed it. Absolutely nailed it. And again, we're talking about that here. There's a passage early in the film in which young Henry Hill looks out the window of his family's apartment and observes with awe and envy the swagger of the low-level wise guys in the social club across the street. Impressed by the fact that they got girls, drove hot cars, had money, that the cops never gave them tickets, that even when their loud parties lasted all night, nobody ever called the police. That was the life he wanted to lead, the narrator tells us. The memory may come from Hill and may be in Pelagi's book, but the memory also is Scorsese's. And in the 23 years that I have known him, we have never had a conversation that did not touch at some point on that central image in his vision of himself, of the kid in the window watching the neighborhood gangsters. Like The Godfather, Scorsese's Goodfellas is a long movie with space, uh, the space and leisure to expand and explore its themes. It isn't about any particular plot. It's about what it felt like to be in the mafia, the good times and the bad times. 
At first, they were mostly good times, and there is an astonishing camera movement in which, with the point of view, follows Henry and Karen on one of their first dates. And this is the Copa scene. To the Copa Cabana nightclub, there are people waiting in line at the door, but Henry takes her in through the service entrance past the security guards and the off-duty waiters down a corridor through a kitchen through the service area and out into the front of the club where a table is literally lifted into the air and placed in front of all the others so that it, the young couple can be in the first row, first row for the floor show. This is power. For that, that scene, for Karen, you know, the whole thing was Tommy's dating Karen's friend. Jew broad from the, and I hate to say it like that, this is what he kept saying, this Jew broad been trying to bang her. She's from the five towns. They got a lot of money. To live in the five towns in, in that time, you did have to have some money. I don't know exactly how it is now. It could still be that way. Um, again, I'm not from New York. And let me just, the five towns, so you guys know what I'm talking about. Okay, so the five towns an informal grouping of villages and hamlets in Nassau County. United States south uh, shore of western Long Island adjoining the border with Queens County in New York. Um, the basic five towns, the basic five are Lawrence, Cedarhurst, Woodmere, Hewlett, and Inwood. Each of these towns has a consecutive stop on the far Rockaway branch of the Long Island Railroad. Um, all five communities are part of the town of Hempstead. Woodmere is the largest and most populous community in the five towns, while Inwood is the second largest community in the five towns. Um, in popular culture, the 1993 movie Amongst Friends by Rob Weiss was filmed and set in the new towns. Uh, five towns, I'm sorry. The television show Entourage features a fictional show titled Five Towns in which Johnny Drama stars as a character. Obviously, in the film Goodfellas, when trying to get Henry to come along on a double date, Tommy mentions that his date lives in the five towns. So this is, it becomes Henry's story, and by proxy it becomes Karen's story as well. But none of this happens, or at least the marriage to Karen doesn't happen without Tommy being, you know, trying to be invested in, you know, getting this girl to sleep with him, who's from the five towns. Um, Henry, very bored on the first date, you know, fidgeting with his lighter and things like that, and Karen's like, he looked, you know, he didn't look interested at all. He barely said two words to me. Um, they made plans to have another date. Henry didn't show up, and it turned out bad. She made Tommy, you know, Karen's like, I made Tommy take him, take me to go looking for him. And then, you know, he pulls up on him. He's outside. He's like, you look bored. I thought you were going to cancel. You know what? Let me make it up to you. Let me take you out. Oh, it's going to cost you, Hill. It's going to cost you big time. And then he ends up taking her to the Copa, and this table is brought out of nowhere. And, you know, that she talks about another date where Bobby Vinton was performing and he sent Henry champagne. This kid's 21 years old. How does he have connections like this? Now, in modern times, it's common for things like that to happen. If you have some sort of notoriety and fame and things like that, right? It happens with entertainers all the time. Oh, such and such is over there. Such and such sends their love. Oh, send them a bottle. You know, even going back, as I mentioned, the Drake album releasing earlier. The Drake and Chris Brown feud in the hip-hop and R&B community it was a big thing. And literally, Drake sends Chris Brown a bottle in the club. Unfortunately, there's an, apparently a note attached that says, I'm fucking the love of your life, deal with it. And Chris Brown sent the bottle back, and then apparently Drake threw the bottle back at him. And that started the whole thing. But, you know, you, 
you're this girl from the five towns. You're out on a date with this guy who tells you he's in construction. He's 21 years old. He's got all these connections. Oh, no, I don't do any labor. I'm a union delegate, which could be a big deal back then. And, you know, unions, that's the thing about the mafia. Like, the unions, they ran a lot of the unions back then. And then that's how they were able to get people jobs and things like that. But Karen didn't think anything of it because she didn't, she wouldn't know any better. But union delegate, he gets you to the front everywhere you guys go. And you're having dinner. And the guy performing on stage, Bobby Vinton, sends you champagne? I don't know. I don't know. It just kind of seems like, yo, union delegate? What do you really have your hands in, sir? Karen doesn't know yet exactly what Henry does, and she finds out. The method of the movie is a slow expansion through levels of the mafia, which the characters introduce casually, and some of them not really developed until later in the story. We meet the Don Paul Cicero played by Paul Servino and Jim, uh, Jimmy the Gent Conway, played by Robert De Niro, a man who steals for the sheer love of stealing, and Tommy DeVito, played by Joe Pesci, a likable guy except that his fearsome temper can explode in a second with fatal consequences. We follow them through 30 years at first, through years of unchallenged power, then through years of decline, but they have their own kitchen and prison and boxes of thick steaks and crates of wine and then into betrayal and decay. The scene where they go to prison is very interesting. You know, they have a celebration before it. A lot of guys don't get that. You get locked up and you rot in jail until trial and then you go to prison. And uh, Henry gets into the back of a limo and says, now take me to jail. Now, we're coming up on the 10-year anniversary of Lil Wayne being released from prison and releasing his album. And I saw like a little mock, not mockumentary, but it was a small documentary or a clip of a documentary that's coming due to the 10-year anniversary where Lil Wayne literally has a party and then gets in a car and says, now take me to jail, a call back to Goodfellas, right? And this is how this film has ingratiated itself in pop culture and the things that we do on a daily basis. For a time, Lil Wayne was the biggest star on the planet. And this guy, the biggest star on the planet, borrows a line from one of the greatest films of all time, now take me to jail. And again, we follow 30 years through decline, They have their own kitchen in prison with steaks and wine and sausages and cheese and things like that. And Henry says, everybody else lived like jerks in the can. We live like kings. They had their own section. The only thing that the only thing they didn't have was the outside companionship of their family. But most of the guys in there, if you're if you're doing time with a bunch of guys you grew up with, you know, you're going to have a blast. You know, me and my cousins would take road trips and things like that, and we would just laugh and joke and talk about all the good times and stuff like that. So if you sent me to jail with Sterling, Shawan, and Shakar, yeah, the time of it is going to suck, but I'm going to enjoy myself. If we can eat like that and live like kings, I'll be fine. So even the, the you know, the point where Henry goes to prison, they it, it's glorified and it's glamorized. Now, the book kind of tells it a different way. But it's still kind of glorized and glamorized, and Henry was selling drugs and using, you know, the COs to get his his point across that you know he had guys, he had Karen bringing things for him and stuff like that, and he's selling it in prison. And you know, people talk about conjugal visits; that's not really a thing. But Henry was having sex with Karen while he was in prison. You know, he knew a point in the yard where he could get out of the gate, and Karen would be parked on the other side. This guy still lived. He was supposed to be confined to United States Federal Penitentiary and he was still living as if he was on the outside. 
The only difference is there was no Cadillac and there was no Armani suit or whatever the, the you know, Savile Row or Brooks Brothers or whatever. The guy was still living. Ebert goes on to say, at some point, the whole wonderful romance of the mafia goes sour for Henry Hill, and that moment is when he and Jimmy and Tommy have to bury a man whom Tommy kicked almost to death in a fit of a pointless rage. First, they have to finish killing him. They stop at Tommy's mother's house to borrow a knife, and she feeds them dinner. Then they bury him. Then they later have to dig him up again. The worst part is their victim was a made guy, a mafioso who is supposed to be immune. So they are in deep, deep trouble, and this is not how Henry Hill thought it was going to be when he started out on his life's journey. I'm going to go as far as to say, I don't even think the the killing of bats made Henry sour. I, I don't. I, I think that Henry, Henry only wanted out when he got out of prison and he was moving drugs. And I would assume it's, it was heroin or if it was coke, I believe. We see Karen snort some, so I'm under the impression that it's cocaine. Polly told him to stay away from the drugs. Again, we can go back to one of the most famous scenes in The Godfather. The mo- some of the most famous scenes. Don Vito telling Salazzo, no, I cannot go into business with you. Drugs are a dangerous business. And that causing basically a small war to start. Well, that causing conflict and then them attempting to take Don Vito's life and then Sonny retaliating, starting a war, right? Paulie told Henry to stay away from the drugs because of the sentence that drugs can impose if you're arrested. Henry only wanted out when he got caught with drugs. When he saw that helicopter and Karen's like, no, it can't be. And then his brother's like, you're full of shit. And then his guys from Pittsburgh are like, you want to see helicopters? I'll show you helicopters. And they gave Karen Coke to do. A helicopter was following him all day. He had cause for concern. When he got pinched for drugs... Then it's like, I don't want to do this anymore. Now I got to rat on these guys to get out of here. Because they were going to kill him either way. Paulie told him to lay off the drugs. If he got popped for something harmless, he'd have lived out, he'd have went to prison, served his time, came back, and then done whatever he had to do to get back into the life. He got popped for drugs, which is in, in you know the mafia and insomnia. That's why he wanted out. It wasn't the killing of Billy Bats that soured Henry on the on the 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 mafia. It was, you know, getting pinched for drugs. He was told not to do it. He was clearly told by Paulie not to do it. And that's what upset Paulie so much. You look me in my eyes like a jerk and lied to me. Haven't always been good to you. And Henry cried because Paulie was almost like a father to him. So much that, you know, we only see Henry's father really twice in the film. In the beginning three times in the beginning when he's leaving for work at the, when the narration starts the second time is where henry starts skipping school and his father beats him and then the third time we see a brief glimpse of him at henry and karen's wedding his parents are never mentioned anywhere else in the film the book i'm not sure i'd have to actually pick it up and read it again but nowhere else in the film do they mention henry's parents Polly was effectively henry's dad henry didn't care about his father Henry soured on the mafia when he knew he would be killed. Jimmy, they, you know, he tried to send him down to, uh, Jimmy's like, can you go down and pick something up? He's like, sure. He didn't go because he knew he would never come back alive. That's what soured him on the mafia. 
He was on the take. From the first shot of his first feature, Who's That Knocking at My Door, 1967, Scorsese has loved to use popular music as his counterpoint to the dramatic moments in his film. He doesn't simply compile a soundtrack of golden oldies, he finds the precise sound to underline every moment. In Goodfellas, the popular music helps to explain the transition from the early days when Henry sells stolen cigarettes to guys at a factory gate, through to the fr uh, frenetic later days when he's selling cocaine in disobedience of Paul Cicero's orders and using so much of himself that his life has become a paranoid labyrinth. In all of his work, which has included arguably the best film of, 19 of the 1970s, Taxi Driver, and of the 1980s, Raging Bull, Scorsese has never done a more compelling job of getting inside someone's head as he does in one of the concluding passages of Goodfellas, in which he follows one day in the life of Henry Hill as he tries to do a cocaine deal, cook dinner for his family, placate his mistress, and deal with the suspicion that he's being followed. This is a sequence that has imprinted me so deeply with the mood of the film. It's not a straightforward narrative, uh, straightforward narrative passage, and it has little to do with the plot. It's about the feeling of walls closing in and the guilty feeling that the walls are deserved. And this is what I'm talking about. This is where he wants out. It had nothing to do with Billy Bats. Because he still lived a high life after they killed Bats. Where it falls down for Henry is after they kill Tommy for killing Billy Bats. And Henry's obviously very high on drugs. And Jimmy's not really messing with him anymore. Your best friend is dead. Your other friend is not really messing with you. Your mistress is giving you problems. Life really sucks. And Henry was getting high out of his mind to basically deal with it. Alright, so... The counterpoint is a sense of duty, of compulsion. The drug deal must be made, but the kid brother also must be picked up, and the sauce must be stirred. And meanwhile, Henry's life is careening wildly out of control. <clears throat> Actors have a way of doing their best work, the work that lets us see them clearly. In a Scorsese film, Robert De Niro emerged as the best actor of his generation in Taxi Driver. Joe Pesci playing De Niro's brother in Raging Bull created a performance of comparable complexity. Both De, Niro, both De Niro and Pesci are here in Goodfellas, essentially playing major and very challenging supporting roles to Ray Liotta and Lorraine Bracco, who established themselves here clearly as two of our best new movie actors. Liotta was Melanie Griffith's late-arriving, late disturbingly dangerous husband in Something Wild, and here he creates the emotional center for a movie that is not about the experience of being a mafioso, but about the feeling. Remember, he's not truly a member, because he has Irish blood. He's not truly a member. He's just an outsider with very, very strong ties, but he's not truly a member of the Cicero family. Bracco was the cop's wife from out in the suburbs in Someone to Watch Over Me, a film in which her scenes were so effective that it was with real sense of loss that was returned to, we returned to the main story. The sense of their marriage of uh, is at the heart of the film, especially in the shot where he clings to her exhausted. They have made their lifetime commitment and it was to the wrong life. Many of Scorsese's films have been poems about guilt. Think of Mean Streets, with the Harvey Keitel character tortured by his sexual longings or after hours with the Griffin Dunn character involved in an accidental death and finally hunted down on the streets by a misinformed mob, or think of The Last Temptation of Christ in which even Christ is permitted to doubt. Goodfellas is uh, about guilt more than anything else, but it is not a straightforward morality play in which good is established and guilt is the appropriate reaction toward evil. No, the hero of this film feels guilty for not upholding the Mafia Code. Guilty of the sin of betrayal, and his punishment is banishment. But he banished himself. Again, had Henry never got involved in drugs, things would not have been that bad. And the drugs is what had the FBI and the police following him. 
and his uh, punishment is banishment into the witness protection program where nobody has a name and the head uh, waiter certainly doesn't know it. What finally got to me after seeing this film, what makes it a great film, is that I understood Henry Hill's feelings. Just as his wife Karen grew so completely absorbed by the mafia in her life that its values became her own, so did the film weave a seductive spell. It is almost possible to think sometimes of the characters as really being good fellows. The camaraderie is so strong, their loyalty is so unquestioned, but the laughter is strained and forced at times. And sometimes it's an effort to enjoy the party and eventually the whole mythology comes crashing down. And then the guilt, the real guilt, the guilt a Catholic like Scorsese understands intimately is not that they did sinful things, but what they that they want to do them again. Brilliant, brilliant film, ladies and gentlemen. If you have not seen Goodfellas, I urge you to stop what you're doing and watch that film now. I've had the pleasure of introducing that film to no less than five people. And at the beginning, they're all like, this is going to be stupid. I don't want to watch this. And then at the end, they're like, holy shit, really? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. It's one of the greatest films of all time, in my humble opinion. And again, we're doing this series here. But this film, I talked about in, in with The Godfather, we talked about the romanticizing of the Corleone family. You would have never known that they were bad guys because Don Vito, you know, he doted on his children. You'd have never thought they were bad guys. And then the juxtaposed with The Godfather Part 2 where Michael clearly lets you know that we're fucking bad guys. And the nutty part about it is in The Godfather 2, Michael promised Kay the family would be completely legitimate in five years. And we find ourselves in Godfather 2, and that's not the case. And again, it's a juxtapose of him and his father. They couldn't be any more different in the way that they handled business. But part two is about breaking down this romantic feeling we have about the Corleone family. And by the time the film is done, it's complete rubbish. It's all gone. And then here we find ourselves with Goodfellas. It's about being on the outside, wanting to be a part of what they do. It's as simple as the the outsider in school who's not a jock, who's not one of the cute popular kids, who's a nerd who may be in the band or something like that. And life changed, don't get me wrong, but still, you know, Everybody wears glasses these days. Some people wear them strictly for fashion and not for actual use. I don't wear my glasses often. I should a little bit more. Back in the day, if you wore glasses, four eyes, you geek, you nerd, you weren't invited to sit at the the cool table at lunch. You may have been Henry Hill. You just wanted to be a part of it. And then if somebody says, hey, come sit with us, you're not really a part of it. You're an outsider they invited in. You're now Henry Hill. And everyone I've shown this film, at the end of it, they're like, wow. And I'm like, yeah. That's the beauty of it. So again, I urge you guys to watch Goodfellas. My name is Derek Lamont Jackson. That's all the time I have for you guys today. Stay tuned for our fourth episode, where we will close this thing out with The Sopranos, which will be in conjunction with the Sopranos sequels uh, hitting theaters and HBO Max on October 1st, The Many Saints of Newark. As always, stay happy, stay humble, take care of yourselves, stay masked up, you guys, get vaccinated, and don't let people tell you it's not going to save you. It may, yeah, there's a possibility you still could die from the virus, but you have a better chance of fighting it with the vaccination than without. 
As always, you guys have yourself a great day. Peace out.